If you recall these many months back, back in September of last year, uh, when we were first able to return here to Bayside High School for worship in person and together, um, we began a new series at that time going through the book of John, the gospel of John, chapter and verse, seeking to understand what does it mean to follow Jesus. And here we arrive now at the almost the very end of John. If you have a Bible, you can open it up this morning to John chapter 19. And John 18 and 19 cover the entire crucifixion story. And so this morning we come to a very serious, a very sober, and yet a very joy-filled in reality moment that has forever changed the universe and certainly has given us our one and only way to salvation. As we think about this, um, this calling to, to follow Jesus and the way that Jesus himself through his words, his life, his teaching has shown that to us through God's word, think about what does it mean to, to follow Jesus. One, one way to think about this is when we consider the world around us, we consider what everyone tends to be chasing, there are many of us who will follow a particular person, a particular voice out in contemporary culture, a celebrity. We will follow a particular philosophy or a particular movement, or we will chase hard after the shiny things of this world, the treasures that we believe are going to provide for us what we want, but in reality, they never satisfy. What we're saying as followers of Jesus is that because his grace is so good, because his power is so real, because his truth is so perfect that we choose no longer to follow after those little things of this world, but we choose to say, Jesus is my king. And I want to follow him. How striking it should be then that we choose to follow one who would go to the cross, one who was killed, one whose story around the world is being told and discussed even today. This morning, we're going to look at five short verses in chapter 19, but even in these five verses, it really allows us to survey the entirety of the story of Jesus' death and all that went into it. So we're going to begin here now in verse 17 and really consider the crucifixion story that the Son of God, that the King of Kings was put on trial, was beaten, was mocked, and was nailed to a cross. Chapter 19 of John, now beginning in verse 17, the scripture says this, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Let's take a moment, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit now might illuminate your perfect word to us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, your one and only son whom you sent. And Father, would you fill us with consideration of the realities of the cross and of the gospel this morning? Would you fill us with hope and with joy 
as we remember what you have done for your people. And Lord, I pray once again that if any are hearing this message, this truth for the first time, and they've never considered Jesus and his relationship to them, Lord, that today might be the day. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Three things this morning from these verses that define or determine who you will follow. The crucifixion, the coronation, and it ultimately leads us to the question, the question. First, the crucifixion, and we see this particularly explained to us in verses 17, but again, all of chapter 18 and 19 really walks us through all the details of this moment in history. First, we know a little bit earlier on that Jesus was mocked and he was beaten. During his trial before Caiaphas, who was the Jewish high priest for that year, his guards blindfolded him, blindfolded Jesus, and demanded that that Jesus would prophesy and, and determine who it was that was punching him and striking him and spitting on his face. Right off the bat, he, he, he's being beaten. Then at his second trial with the Roman governor, whose name was Pontius Pilate, before ever even pronouncing a verdict. No verdict rendered, Jesus was stripped of his clothes, clothes and scourged. If you're not familiar with the word scourged, scourged is a, is a whip that was filled with metal or, or glass, rock, and was used to, to beat someone, to rip flesh from their body. Many times, someone would not even survive just the scourging. But the Bible says that Jesus was scourged. And then the Roman soldiers took it upon themselves to mock this supposed king by placing, as you have read before maybe, a robe around him and pressing a crown of thorns into his head to further mock his supposed kingship, and then they beat him with a a makeshift scepter so as to eradicate any idea that this man was in any way, shape, or form a king. During his first trial, again, which was the Jewish trial before the high priest, Jesus was accused of the spiritual sin of blasphemy because he claimed to be God. If Jesus really were indeed a man, then this charge would have absolutely been accurate, the charge of blasphemy, to have claimed to be God. But the problem for the priest that they refused to acknowledge was that this man was God. He was innocent of their accusation. But this was not a trial of justice in any sense. Because at no point was there ever allowed any testimony to actually explain or defend Jesus' claim that he was, in fact, God. In the second trial, though, the second trial was, again, before the Roman governor. He was accused there not of blasphemy because the Roman government could not care less about the issue of blasphemy. Here, he was accused falsely of insurrection and treason, which they would certainly care about, because he had, again, supposedly made himself king, at least a king by their definition. And so liars and slanderers were sought and brought forward to falsely accuse Jesus, make up stories about him, because this trial was extremely legally precise. However, the result was the same, total injustice. Three times, Pontius Pilate said to the crowd about Jesus, this man is innocent. He's done none of the things that you claim. And yet out of political 
convenience. Out of fear of the crowds, Pilate handed over an innocent Jesus, whom he knew to be innocent, to be crucified. And then there was the march towards Golgotha, the place of the skull. The Bible says that Jesus bore his own cross. He would have been surrounded by his four Roman executioners, and they would have carried the same sign that would soon be over his head. One of those soldiers would have carried that same sign because it was a record of his sin. It was the accusation against him. It was his crime. Jesus would have been made to carry his crossbeam all the way through the city, and this would have weighed probably at least 100 pounds. And we know that at one point, the guards grabbed a man named Simon of Cyrene out of the crowd to carry the crossbeam for Jesus because he had been beaten so severely that he could no longer carry his own crossbeam. The walk would have been long. This was not a direct path to Golgotha. They were taking as long as they could to go through as many streets as they could to humiliate the victim as much as they could and also to strike fear in the hearts of everyone who watched to remember this is what happens to those who challenge Rome. And then the crucifixion. Do you know that Only the Romans were allowed to perform an execution. Only the Romans were allowed to perform a crucifixion. They controlled most of what was the known world at the time. And because crucifixion was so grotesque, because it was so torturous, crucifixion was never used on Roman citizens. It was absolutely forbidden, unthinkable. It was for slaves. It was for criminals. It was for anybody who was not a Roman who lived out in the provinces, provinces like Judea where they stood at that moment. This was the death that Jesus died. He was laid on the crossbeam. Nails would have been driven through his wrists and then they would hoist him up onto the cross. And then they would bend his knees just enough before nailing his feet to the other end of the cross so as to allow him to breathe just enough to stay alive temporarily, and the horrific up and down motion to be able to continue to breathe, to not asphyxiate, and victims would die within hours or sometimes days, whether it be from blood loss or what's called hypovolemic shock or asphyxiation, because in that position you eventually cannot breathe. So much for human justice. See what I'm saying? So much for human justice. But I think of Genesis 50, 20. You know Genesis 50, verse 20 in the Old Testament says? It says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God was not surprised by this moment. God is using this very moment to pour out his holy justice and wrath on his son instead of pouring it out on us What humanity meant for evil, God here means for good. And even as we consider the the physical reality of the pain that Jesus suffered, the Bible does not focus in on the physical. The Bible makes it clear that the much greater tragedy, the much greater suffering for Jesus was the fact that spiritually he would be separated from the love and the goodness and the presence of his heavenly Father. That when he died, he would literally go to a place called hell that was separation from the grace and the kindness of God where only the justice and the wrath of God is poured out. That was far worse than any physical suffering that Jesus could have ever experienced. 
the crucifixion. But number two, even in his crucifixion, there is a coronation. He is king. He was king. He will always be king. We see this in verses 19 and 20. John, the writer of the gospel, is very clear that Jesus is king. He is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He existed before time began. He's always been been king, but he came to earth for us. Pontius Pilate had written on the sign, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He meant it to mock Jesus. He meant it to irritate the Jews, but little did he know that what he was writing on the sign was the truth. It was the truth. Look at the story with me. Go back to the very beginning, Matthew chapter 2. Think of the wise men, Christmas time. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. This morning is actually Palm Sunday. Listen to John chapter 12. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. A week before Jesus' death, they're proclaiming him the king. And then at his trial, the Roman trial with Pilate in a conversation between Jesus and Pontius Pilate, it says this, this is John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not a physical thing, it's a spiritual thing, so much bigger and more broad and powerful. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus is king because Jesus is God. At his first trial before the Jews when he was accused of blasphemy, claiming to be God, Luke chapter 22 says this, if you are the Christ, the Messiah, tell us. But Jesus said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. The thrust of the Greek here is literally, you are right in saying that I am God. So Jesus, fully God, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, calling himself the great I am. We have the seven I am statements throughout the Gospel of John. The name Yahweh in the Old Testament, the great I am, ego eimi in Greek a name that was too holy to be spoken in the Old Testament. Jesus takes this name for himself to remove all doubt that he is telling you he is God. But it wasn't just his word, was it? He was prophesied throughout the Old Testament in detail, born of a virgin, taught with authority, performed miracle after miracle that he told us were signs to help us understand that he is who he claims to be. 
He lived the perfect life, committed no sin. Oh, yeah, and one more thing, right? Look at John chapter 20. Verse 25, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Oh, Thomas, doubting Thomas, unless I see it, unless I put my hands in it, I will not believe. I love the scripture. Verse 26, eight days later, Thomas says, I'm not believing. I'm not believing. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Doors are locked. There's no way in. Jesus enters the room because he's God. And he says, peace be with you. If you're a disciple in that moment, you have lost your mind freaking out. You were hanging out. Now Jesus is in the room, and he says to you, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, he goes straight to Thomas, not in anger, in love, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What was Thomas's response? Oh, that's interesting, Jesus. Thanks for, it's a little awkward, a little bloody. Maybe we can catch up later, grab coffee. No, 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 no. My Lord and my God is his response to seeing Jesus because the resurrection is the final word. It is the final demonstration that Jesus was not a good teacher. He's not a moral guy. He's not interesting to consider. He doesn't influence our thoughts and our politics. He is the king and he is God. And he's the savior of the world, isn't he? He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. It's interesting that the Bible tells us this, this detail that you might throw away, but don't throw away any detail in the Bible. The Bible says that the sign over Jesus' head, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, that it was written in three languages, Greek, Aramaic, and Latin. The reality that Jesus is Savior, that Jesus is King, that Jesus is God over all people is here displayed in this sign. An accusation supposed to be his crimes is actually a reality of why we worship him, that he is Lord over all, that he is Savior for all. That's why the Bible says every tribe, every tongue, every nation the gospel has gone forward to, that every single person who will believe in him can be saved, and that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life to come to the Father. He's not just king of the Jews, is he? He's king of the entire world. Grace, available equally to all people. All of us have sinned. All of us have rejected God, and Jesus came to save us. And it's not an afterthought, right? John told us at the very beginning of the book, he told us this right up front. Look at John chapter 1, the true light. Jesus, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The crucifixion, the coronation, and it leaves us with 
a question. And this is really where the last two verses come into play. He's king. Is he your king? Is he your savior? Is the question that the scripture demands that we answer this morning. We know what the chief priests thought. The chief priests rejected him utterly. And when they realized that Jews were gathering and reading the sign and considering what it meant, they became enraged and alarmed and they went back to Pilate over and over again and said, take the sign down. Change it. I don't want it to say king of the Jews. Make it say he claimed to be king of the Jews. And if we go back into the the Greek here for just a second, which I know everybody loves, it is the Greek perfect tense. And so what he's literally saying is, it's what I wrote, and I'm never changing it, and it will always say this, king of the Jews. Pilate had no idea the truth that was coming out of his mouth. They made their decision. They they answered the question, we don't want Jesus. Our world has made the decision, we don't want Jesus. And yet, there is grace. Because there are two thieves that enter briefly into this story. We learn a whole lot more about these two thieves that were crucified on each side of Jesus, right along with him in the book of Luke. And we know that initially both of the thieves, both thieves, mocked Jesus and reject him. But then there was a moment when the first thief says these astounding words to the other thief. He says, we deserve to be here. Our crimes, our sin, we deserve this punishment. But this man, Jesus, he did nothing wrong. And faith begins to fill this man's heart. I read a story about A pastor named Dr. Donald Barnhouse, who was the pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia in the mid-1900s, he was in his office at church one day, and a man came in, asked to see him, and he came in, and it turns out that the man who came to visit was the captain of the Mauritania. The Mauritania was the largest passenger ship in the world at the time. And he came in and he visited with Dr. Barnhouse and he said, 23 times a year I travel back and forth across the Atlantic from England to America. And when I'm nearing America, I pick up your radio broadcast and I listen to you teaching about Jesus. And since I have 24 hours here on land, I wanted to come and talk to you about him. So Dr. Barnhouse, sensing that this was not just a a chat conversation, he, he went directly to the man. He said, Captain, are you born again. The captain said, this is exactly what I came to see you about. So Dr. Barnhouse led him to the prayer room in their church and went to a chalkboard, picked up a piece of chalk, and he drew the three crosses, the two thieves and Jesus in the middle. And under the first and the third cross, he wrote the word in, in, in. And then under the second cross, Jesus' cross, he wrote the words, not in, not in. He said, do you understand, Captain, what I am writing? And the captain said, yes, I do. I I know that Jesus did not have sin in him. There was no sin within Jesus, but there was sin in the other two. Then Dr. Barnhouse went back to the board, and over the first, on top of the first and the third cross, he wrote the word, on, on. 
And he looked at the captain and he said, do you understand what I mean when I say on? And the captain looked a bit more puzzled this time and he said, let me explain it to you this way. Have you ever run a red light? The captain said, yes. He said, were you ever caught? The captain said, no. He said, well, in running the red light, you had sin in you. Had you been caught and faced punishment, you would have sin on you. You would have had justice and judgment on you. The thieves on the cross both had justice being put on them. They were bearing the just penalty and punishment of God. There was no sin in Jesus. But then he wrote the word on, on top of Jesus. And he said, your sin and my sin was laid on him. And then he crossed out the on over the first thief. He drew an arrow and he took it and he pointed it over to Jesus. And he said, the gospel is this that the sin that this man rightly deserved to die for, the consequences, the punishment, was taken off of him and placed on Jesus. No sin in him, but the consequences in him. His sin rested on Jesus because that man put his faith in Jesus. He looked at the captain and he said, how about you? And this distinguished British captain of the ship began to weep, and he said, by God's grace, I am also that first man, that first thief. And that very day was the moment that that captain moved from death to life, moved from being guilty of his sins to being forgiven of his sins, his sins being taken off of himself and placed on Jesus. See, because our story, if we have asked Jesus to be our Savior, is the same story as the thief. It's the same story as the captain. And if you've never experienced that story, then today is the day and now is the opportunity to say, Lord Jesus, I want that same free gift as well. This is love, isn't it? Jesus was beaten for sins he didn't commit. He was mocked for lies that were not true. He was crucified, though he was innocent. Romans 6.23, when I have an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody in a conversation, I always share Romans 6.23. For the wages or the payment, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Think about that sign, the sign that said Jesus, the King of the Jews. What would your sign say? If every sin, every crime, every moment that you had broken God's law was written on that sign the way Jesus was, what would it say? If it was my sign, it'd be a long sign, right? It'd be a big sign. Jesus literally is saying, I will take everything on that sign. I will be punished for it. And in exchange, I will give you my sign. You too can be a part of God's family. You too can be king because my perfect righteousness is gonna be gifted to you when I take your sin on you so that those who are in Christ, when God looks at you, he no longer sees your sin. He no longer sees your shame. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. We did nothing to earn it. It's a free gift. All you have to do is believe. 
the way that the thief did, the way that the captain did. We talk about it this way. It is the, the ABCs. Coming to Christ is, is so simple. It is the ABCs. It is A, admit that you're a sinner and that you need Christ, that your sin has separated you from God. Just admit that you are a sinner and believe that Jesus is the Savior. He died for you. He rose for you. He's the only way. Believe that Jesus is your Savior. And C, commit. Commit your life to him. Lord Jesus, I take myself off the throne of my life. And I'm making you king. Admit, believe, commit. It's that simple. Our theme over this year has been follow Jesus. Who will you follow? Believer, who are you following today? What voices determine your life's course? Who are you in obedience and submission to? I hope and I pray that you are refreshed in desiring to make it one and only one, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died in your place. Make no mistake, he is king. Is he, is he your king is the question this morning. And remember this, Easter is coming. Resurrection is coming. We do not celebrate Jesus as if it was a memorial. He is alive. At the very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, written by John, the same man who wrote the Gospel of John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, towards the end of Revelation in chapter 19, John is given a vision by the Holy Spirit of the resurrected King Jesus and all of his holiness and power. And it says simply this, John, Revelation 19, 16, of Jesus, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. Let's pray together.